Hello and welcome back to the Northwestern Undergraduate Law Journal. My name is Jamie and I'm the founder and co-editor-in-chief of the journal and I co-hosted today with Kirsten, an associate journal editor. In this episode, we speak with Professor Stone from the University of Chicago Law School. We discuss Amy Coney Barrett's nomination and the future of the Supreme Court. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Northwestern Undergraduate Law Journal Speaker Series. How have confirmation hearings changed since they became first popular in the 1980s? Um, they've changed in, in two ways, I suppose. One is that um, the, the nominees have become much more reluctant to engage with the members of the Senate um, than was once the case. Uh, that was largely the product of the Bork confirmation hearings. Um, because when Bork was nominated, um, he chose to be very transparent in his answers and to treat it kind of like a seminar where he was teaching the senators. But by so doing, he was very open about his views and ultimately was not confirmed. And in the years since then, uh, nominees have been much more cautious um, and have tended to, to follow the approach that we're seeing with, with Amy Coney Barrett um, of basically saying nothing. Um, and uh, that, that's been the case for a while. This is an extreme version of that, what we're seeing now, but that's increasingly become the, um, the, the approach. Uh, the second thing we've seen is that the, the confirmation uh, process has in recent years in particular become more contentious. Um, and uh, and more and more politically polarized. The in the past, uh, with a few exceptions, uh, for the most part, the justices or the nominees were confirmed um, with a fairly highly nonpartisan vote. What we're now seeing um, is not situations like what we saw when Ruth Ginsburg or Antonin Scalia were nominated where basically they were both confirmed by largely, almost entirely nonpartisan votes. Uh, but in more recent years, we're seeing much more partisan division. Um, and part of the reason for that is that the nominees tend to be uh, in recent years, much more um, extreme in their views uh, than was once the case. And uh, there's a much more obvious effort to manipulate and to direct the court by the administration than used to be the case. Um, and so what we're seeing is a much more polarized, much more radical um, process that's very bad for the court as an institution. What do you think has contributed to this politicalization, both from um, like the executive and also from maybe outside organizations such as the Federalist Society and um, just any contributing factors? Um, I think a lot of it was is due to the Federalist Society, um, which has become over the years a highly political and polarizing force. Um, it was originally created by people like Antonin Scalia when he was a professor at the University of Chicago and Robert Bork when he was a professor at Yale, um, largely for intellectual reasons, largely to identify and articulate a conservative approach to constitutional interpretation. But over the years, it's become um, a, 
an institution dedicated to promoting individuals with a particular very narrowly defined set of legal attitudes uh, to the judiciary. And it has done that beginning with law students, maybe even college students, as far as I know, but certainly law students, um, and taken that right up to the people being appointed to the Supreme Court of the United States. And they've done that in a way that is, that is very narrowly defined as to who they think is acceptable. Um, and they've been very effective at doing this because their supporters um, have given them lots of resources. Um, and because uh, individuals who are ambitious have been willing to conform their views to what the federal society tells them their views have to be if they want to get appointed. Um, and so I think what we've seen is a real distortion of the process due in no small part to the efforts of the federal society to take control of it and to dominate it. Okay, great. Um, and then now regarding Barrett's um, policy implications, what do you think um, Obamacare would look like if she does get confirmed? Um, given her statements about Chief Justice Roberts' opinion in the Shelby case, where he voted to uphold the Affordable Care Act, and given her statements about precedent, which she says basically should not control if you believe the precedent was wrong. Um, and given the fact that there are four other justices who surely disagree with Robert's opinion in that case, I think what will happen is they will strike down critical components of the Affordable Care Act. And uh, one thing that is, had, is said often, and I assume is true, is that some 20 million people will lose their health coverage um, at a time in particular where it's desperately needed because of COVID. But yeah, I, I would certainly have to predict that that's what will happen. Very interesting. Um, we also um, wanted to talk maybe more generally about her views. So Amy Coney Barrett calls herself an originalist. Um, and in an article, um, you were cited saying that the judges purport to engage in originalist analysis often project onto the framers their own personal and political preferences. How do you see this happening in relation to Amy Coney Barrett and her views on originalism? Um, I think that real originalism has several problems with it, which is why, for the most part, it has not been taken seriously by serious legal scholars and lawyers. Um, although when Bork and Scalia put it forth, they meant it to be serious and they thought it could work. The first problem with it is that it is inconsistent with originalism. That is, the framers of our Constitution put into the Constitution phrases like make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or unreasonable searches and seizures, or deprive a person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. These were not terms that, in their view, had clear and defined meanings. Um, and they understood that these were open-ended and vague and subject to interpretation. And they had no intention or belief that that would not be the case. So originalism is simply not originalist. That's the first problem with it. The second problem with it is that most of the time, if you try to do originalism, not all the time, but most of the time, 
you don't know what the framers actually thought about many questions. And so you don't actually have a, a, a simple, clear answer. And what originalist judges tend to do is, quite honestly, is to attribute to the framers the policy views that they have. And therefore, not surprisingly, they almost never reach results purporting to be originalist that are inconsistent with their own political views. So to give just two simple examples, but important ones, um, there's no coherent argument that one can make that the framers of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment meant to prohibit affirmative action. They had no views about affirmative action one way or the other. They didn't exist. And yet every conservative justice purporting to be originalist has held affirmative action unconstitutional. But the fact is there's no principled basis for that in an originalist inquiry. Another example is campaign finance. Uh, every conservative justice has held campaign finance laws unconstitutional, but there's absolutely no principled basis for attributing to the framers any views one way or the other on the issue of campaign finance. So in terms of Barrett, um, I think what we will see is that in the guise of originalism, um, she will vote to either uphold or to strike down a broad range of views and laws that where her votes conform to her personal political views. And she will pretend to be originalist, but in fact, originalism will have very little of anything to do with it. And that to me is deeply unfortunate because justices should be transparent and candid about their arguments. Um, and I don't think that she will be any better than Clarence Thomas, for example, or Antonin Scalia in this regard. If you ask yourself in any of the five most controversial, most important cases that the court decides in any given year, how would a political conservative vote? You will predict her positions 90% of the time. Um, and how do you think we can make this process less political? Um, that's a good question. Um, one thing that helped make it less political was the filibuster. Um, when the filibuster applied to judicial nominations, um, you couldn't get someone confirmed if they were seen as off the charts to other members of the Senate because it didn't take a majority to block a nomination. And that tended to push uh, presidents to nominate in general more moderate people. They could still be liberals or conservatives, but they tended to be more moderate because the filibuster could be used. It was used very rarely, in fact, until uh, the Obama administration, um, but, but it could be used and presidents and their staffs knew this, and therefore they tried to find people who would be at least tolerable to their political opponents. But in the Obama administration, um, the Republicans in the Senate um, used the filibuster to block Obama's nominees, this is now mainly to the lower courts, um, 
much, much, much more often than ever had been used in the past as a percentage of cases. And this was a complete violation of the norms of the process of confirmation. And so they were basically blocking nominees who were actually quite moderate, but, but because they were liberal moderate rather than conservative. And the, the effect of this eventually is the Democrats, when they got control of the Senate, abolished the filibuster for lower court nominees. Um, and I don't think they liked doing that, but the Republicans were so substantially abusing this device that it was completely unacceptable. Obama simply could not get a large percentage of his perfectly sensible nominees confirmed because the Republicans in a minority were filibustering. And so the Democrats got rid of the filibuster for those. Um, and then at the Supreme Court level, uh, when um, Neil Gorsuch was nominated um, to take the seat that was appropriately that of um, uh, of, um, of Merrick Garland, sorry, Merrick oh. Garland, right. Um, the uh, Republicans got rid of the filibuster because they now control the Senate because the Democrats were going to filibuster because of what had been done to the Garland. And then the Supreme Court filibuster was removed. So the net effect of that is it took away one of the important checks mm -hmm. on the administration in control running amok in appointing ever more radical judges. So what do we do about this now? Um, I would like to think that both sides understand that this is not a healthy process. One of the ways in which one can see the, the, the fact that it's not a healthy process is basically for the first time in our history, we now have a Supreme Court that is totally polarized by the presidents, the party of the presidents who appointed the justices. So before Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed, there were five Republican appointed justices who were all conservative, very conservative, four Democrat appointed justices who were liberal. And now it'll be six to three along those lines. But the point is that's not the way the court was ever constituted in the past. In the past, Democrats appointed justices, some of whom were conservatives, and Republicans appointed justices, some of whom were liberals. And you didn't have this Democrat-Republican Supreme Court. So in the Warren Court, for example, which was thought to be very liberal, some of the most liberal justices, like Earl Warren and William Brennan, were appointed by Dwight Eisenhower, a Republican president. And some of the more conservative justices, like Felix Frankfurter and Tom Clark, were appointed by Democratic presidents. And there was no partisan division in the court. But now we have that. And that undermines the credibility of the court as an institution. They're not supposed to be political players. They're supposed to be judges. And what we ha now have is a division of the court that makes them all appear to be, and indeed, particularly on the conservative side, in fact, to be um, political agents of a particular political party. And that's just not what the court's supposed to be. So, the answer to the question is, we need members of Congress and with the president to sit down and say, this is a core part of our democracy and it's broken. And it's critical that we fix it because it's important to how we function 
as a constitutional democracy. And we have to sit down and figure out how to put in place procedures that will replicate the tradition of justices being both nominated and confirmed or not, not based on pure partisan political divisions. Now, whether that's possible remains to be seen. Certainly in the Trump era, it's not possible. Whether it would be possible if Joe Biden is elected um, and Trump is out of the picture, assuming he is, um, then maybe there'll be enough responsibility on members of Congress um, to sit down and say, we've got to fix this. It's really a disaster. Right. So assuming Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed, which seems to be the case, what does that mean for the future of our Supreme Court and um, the future of judicial independence in general? Well, it will mean that we have a court with six solid conservatives and five radical conservatives on the court. Um, and Roberts being the quote, more moderate of the conservatives. But again, one of the way to understand that point is if you look back, say to the Nixon era, when Richard Nixon uh, was appointing conservative justices at the time, Lewis Powell, Harry Blackman, William Rehnquist, Warren Burger, by today's standards, they would be regarded as moderate liberals. So the concept of conservative has gone completely off the walls and it is now quite extreme. Um, so what do we see in this court? I think we will see a highly ideological court that on issues like Roe v. Wade, on issues like gay rights, on issues like affirmative action, on issues like voting and uh, racial equality um, are going to be rigidly politically conservative in their decisions. Um, and even though they were right opinions that purport to be intellectually legitimate opinions, they will in fact be acting out of partisan political views. Guns are another example of this. But there's a whole array, array of issues in which you will be able to predict how these justices will behave in 80% of those highly ideological cases. And um, that's going to that's going to have a major impact on the country on all sorts of very important issues in our society, immigration, um, gerrymandering. Um, and the last question is, since we are a student-run podcast, do you have any last words on law school and finding your path as a lawyer? You mean on whether to go to law school or? I'm sorry? You mean on whether to go to law school? Mm -hmm. Or like any advice, like if you attend or... Yeah, I guess. Um, I, think, I think students who go to law school, um, particularly good law schools, I can't speak to the bottom two thirds of law schools, I don't have experience with them. But students who go to good law schools, top third law schools, um, almost never regret it. Almost no one ever drops out. And they have a range of different careers, lots of options open to them. And um, I have to say, knowing a lot of lawyers um, and a lot of people who went to law school, and then many of them are not lawyers. Many of them go off into business or they go off into various kinds of other professions. I know almost none of them who regrets having gone to law school. Um, indeed, I can't, I can't at the moment think of a single one who regrets having gone to law school. 
um, because it opens up lots of options for them that are challenging, that are intellectually rewarding, um, and uh, that enable them to do public service or to raise or to earn money, um, whatever they happen to prefer. Uh, so my, my view is that um, if you make an informed judgment about going to law school, then you almost certainly will never regret that you made that decision, even though you may wind up having a career completely different than what you think you're going to have before you get to law school. Because one thing law school does is to expose you to a whole range of fields and intellectual areas and experiences that you have no way to anticipate. And it's, it's very often the case that students come to law school thinking they're going to do X and wind up doing something completely different um, because they fall in love with it and become intrigued with it and so on. But yeah, I mean, the bottom line is it's very, it's very hard to find students who come to law school who either drop out or who regret having gone there 10, 20, 30 years later. Thank you. That's great advice. And I know from my point of view, my mom's a lawyer and she said best education she's ever had even so many years later. So um, I know our listeners will love hearing about that. And just again, thank you for coming on. And Let me say one more word if I can about the education. The key to legal education, which makes it both so valuable and so effective, is that it's not about learning the law. It's not about memorizing the rules in any particular field, whether it's constitutional law or evidence or whatever. It's about learning to think and to reason and to argue and to respond to other arguments. And it's a skill. And what it's about is teaching you a critical skill that you can use no matter what you do later. And that's partly why it's so valuable. Um, so yes, it's true that you learn all this information and all this stuff, but that's not what it's about. And that's why most, almost all law school exams are open book. Really? Um, yeah. The notion is that, you know, don't waste your time memorizing a bunch of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. What we want you to do is to think about the, com the complexities and how to use what you know in a creative and original manner. And so legal education is about the intellectual skills, analytical skills. Uh, in the course of getting the education, you learn a bunch of stuff, undoubtedly, but that's not what it's about. And that's not what you're tested on. And that's why almost all the exams are open book. Great. Um, so thank you um, and have a great day.